0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello and
1: welcome to RAND. I'm Rebecca Collins, a senior behavioral scientist at the RAND Corporation and director of the Health Promotion and Disease Prevention Program within RAND Health. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our distinguished panelists. Dr. Chloe Bird is a senior sociologist at RAND, where she studies gender differences in physical and mental health and social determinants of health. She has been studying these differences since she was in college and brings us a wealth of knowledge about this subject. She has also studied the neighborhood effects on cardiovascular disease among women. She co-authored the book Gender and Health, the Effects of Constrained Choice and Social Policies in addition to authoring and contributing to many journal articles and publications on these topics and more. Dr. Carol Watson is a cardiologist at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Watson is the director of the Women's Cardiovascular Center at UCLA, the co-director of the UCLA Program in Preventative Cardiology, and the director of the UCLA Fellowship Program in Cardiovascular Diseases. She has studied and published on subjects such as the prevention of heart disease and cardiovascular disease in African Americans. She is the chairperson of the Scientific Advisory Board for Women Heart, the national organization for women living with heart disease, in addition to several other boards. Dr. Watson was also one of the physician hosts of the TLC television series Guardian Angels MD and advisor and guest in the PBS series The Mysterious Human Heart. Amanda Daniels is a heart coach and advocate. Her blog, Voices to Share, Healing Hearts One Voices at a Time, was inspired and created through her own story of survival and healing. Ms. Daniels co-founded the Women Heart of West Los Angeles support group. She promotes awareness for women living with heart disease as a trained women heart champion and as a spokesperson for the American Heart Association. Her story has been featured on Local News and in Shape Magazine. Please join me in welcoming our panel.
2: Thank you all for being here, and thank you, Becky, for your very kind introductions. Um, I'm a medical sociologist here at RAND, and my work focuses on a range of women's health problems. But as you may have gathered, we're focusing on heart disease tonight. Many people are aware of a wide range of women's health problems. Probably most of you have heard the statistic that one in seven women will die of breast cancer. Uh, Far fewer people realize that one in three women has heart disease. One in three women worldwide will die of heart disease. Um, So, tonight we're going to be focusing on uh, heart disease in women. the leading cause of death among both men and women is cardiovascular disease, but when you break it down and look at heart disease separately from stroke, um, it's the leading, heart disease is the leading cause of death for both men and women, and stroke is the third cause of death for women. Uh, so we've got uh, a lot to talk about. Um, I was hoping, uh, Carol, that you could start by saying a little bit about um, some of the differences in heart disease in
3: uh, men and women. So heart disease presents in a number of different ways, and that's the problem. So a pain in the chest can honestly be caused by anything from the skin in the front to the skin in the back, and your body's not very good at telling it apart. Physicians can't tell them apart. It's almost impossible to tell them apart. The differences in heart disease between men and women can be quite dramatic as well. So what we know about how heart disease develops in men and women is that the arteries supplying blood to the heart start to clog up, but it's only usually a 30 or 40% clog that suddenly ruptures open and dramatically shuts off blood flow, and that's a heart attack. In men, that's almost always the case. You have a 30 or 40% blockage in the arteries. It suddenly ruptures open, so it immediately goes to 100%. The blood stops flowing, and it's a dramatic pain in the chest. No one can ignore that. For women, what you often see is 30 40% blockage in the chest, and the chest, the arteries get kind of irritable. They squeeze and tighten. They don't let blood flow go, but then they loosen up. They squeeze again, and then they loosen up. So you can have sort of a stuttering chest pain that is kind of easy to ignore. If you go to an emergency room and say, I just don't feel right, it feels different or I'm just short of breath, or my jaw sort of hurts, or my stomach sort of hurts. That can be the heart, but it doesn't sound nearly as dramatic, and it's something that is not on the forefront of everybody's mind when they hear that. If a man walks in and says, I feel like an elephant sitting on my chest, everybody jumps into action, the cath lab goes, it's the dramatic, you see it on you know, your yeah. Sunday night emergency medical show, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it works that way. But when a woman comes in and saying, I just haven't felt right for the last few days, they're sent home saying, you know, go see your doctor in the morning, get some rest, stop being so anxious. And, and that's not necessarily what, what we need. So those are some of the differences. The number, one ca- the number one symptom with heart disease in both men and women is some amount of chest pain. But for men, that's usually the predominant symptom. For women. It's usually a part of a constellation of other symptoms like jaw pain, shortness of breath, unusual fatigue.
2: So, um, Amanda, um, we were talking earlier about um, how women are less likely to to, to step up and, and go seek care yeah. for that, that,
4: that different pain. Yeah, it's amazing, as Dr. Watson was saying, and I have to, I'm so honored to be here, so thank you for, for inviting me. Um, so I have a support group at UCLA for women living with heart disease, and um, so, I have the most amazing women that come in. Uh, we have every month they come in, and um, the most common thing that I hear from these women is that they didn't know they were experiencing a heart event. And then they'll go into the ER and they'll be misdiagnosed. I mean, my partner who co founded the group was told she had asthma when she was in heart failure. It's awful. It's awful. And then these women it's you're not listening to your body and unfortunately as carol said as dr watson said we see this picture of someone having a heart attack and they go in cuz there's that elephant on their chest whereas there's so many other symptoms and i just i'm here because i love to educate people and to make women especially the men that are here the women that you love to go home and tell them have you been listening to your heart lately Have you been feeling, but honestly, I'm very spiritual as well. What have you done for your heart lately? And are you feeling any of these symptoms? And the symptoms are different, they present themselves differently. I have patients that have come in, and this is so apropos to us women who we do everything for everyone else. And when do we take care of ourselves? And one woman had a library book that was due, but she was undergoing a heart event. And she should have called 911, and I urge everyone. There's a a wonderful PSA, and it's called um, Don't Miss a Beat, Call 911. And it's great because it's a song that will actually go through the symptoms, and you'll get it in your head so that you can share that with all of the women you know in your life about the dizziness, the shortness of breath, um, the more the nausea, the jaw pain. Um, And so if you can go back to everyone and you can share that, Heart disease. Actually, I'm, I'm the face of heart disease, which is pretty amazing. When you look at me, I don't think that any one of you would ever look at me, and uh, you could never imagine that I'm taking medication daily. I take beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, and I've had a procedure a month before my wedding. My wonderful husband is here tonight, but I had a procedure. I had something called a cardiac ablation a month before my wedding, and uh, but I'm here now to show you that it can it can be done. You don't have to worry, you don't have to be scared to know that maybe that little chest pain you're having, that little shortness of breath when you're working out, it could be something more, and you don't have to fear it, because there's so many of us that are living with heart disease too, and, and it's a wonderful community be, to be a part of. so.
2: Yeah, definitely. The, the research backs up the, the anecdotes that, uh, that you've reported that um, women, we, we're all aware that men often don't seek care, uh, might be afraid of being the worried well and, and don't want to go to the hospital and be told it's not a heart attack. Um, but women uh, don't want to give up the responsibilities at home and disrupt everything. So in one of the studies, um, they found that the most often common statement women made to the, the EMTs when paramedics arrived was, I really hate to bother you. Um, women also take... It's longer between the time the EMTs arrive and the time they leave home because they're busy delegating everything off to somebody else and apparently sending their library books back um, instead of getting in the ambulance and going. So so one of the things that we want to be sure everyone takes home is um, that heart disease doesn't
3: discriminate. Right. Um, and, and as Amanda mentioned, mm-hmm. women are pretty intuitive. So we're always... We're kind of... When something's not right, we have an inkling in the back of our heads. I, one of the best studies I've seen was done by the American Heart Association. They gave a script to uh, that they read to different women, and they said, if your best friend came to you saying this, every time I run, I feel short of breath, my chest hurts, what would you do? And they 100% said, I'd make her go to the doctor or call 911. Then they flipped that script around and said... What would you do if you felt like every time you were working out, you got short of breath and your chest started hurting? They said, I'd take a nap. I'd call my sister. I'd call my mom. I, you know, a lot of... So we sort of know what the right thing to do is and when we should do it, and it's getting that point across that we need to do it. It's okay to take care of yourself. And women will do it when they're pregnant. When,
2: when, when, when a woman has a sense that there's something wrong about pregnancy... They will go and seek care. And, and, and you get told uh, when, you're, when you're being seen for prenatal care, if you are convinced there's something wrong, don't take no for an answer. And, and they can be pit bulls for not taking no for an answer and finding out what's going wrong. And, and we'll do that for our spouses, our loved ones. Uh, we our need children. to get women to understand that self-care isn't selfish.
3: So they're thinking about another person when they're pregnant. They're thinking exactly. about their, <laughs> their child. So it's okay to think about us, too, because who's taking care of all those other people? <laughs> That's a, one yeah. of the things.
2: We wouldn't we're expect doing. our cars to work without um, ever taking care of it. Um, our, our, our spouses, our kids to be healthy without ever um, yeah. seeking care. We're not going to be good
4: to anyone else. Mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. We can't do anything for anyone else if we're sick. So... Mm-hmm.
2: so um, Why are the heart disease outcomes worse for women?
3: That's the $20,000 question, and there are a number of different studies looking at that. Mm -hmm. There are a number of things that go into it. There are patient factors, there are provider factors, and there, there are societal factors. Some of the patient factors are because heart disease tends to strike women about a decade after it strikes men, so women are older. They tend to have more hypertension, maybe more... High cholesterol, other comorbidities, so their outcomes then may be worse two the healthcare system again it 's really built on and this is for decades now the model of the we call it the seventy kilogram male that 's where we learned that 's where most of the heart studies and tests were were validated those were that was the research. When a man has heart disease, this is how it looks. And that's what we learned. So we're just now catching up with some of the great research by Dr. Noel barry Mers and others on how it looks in women. So we're kind of just getting that. And then societal factors. Again, it's, it's for whatever reason, many of us don't um, seek care as fast. It, just like Chloe was saying... So if you're not getting the ambulance called fast enough, that means you're not getting to the, the emergency room fast enough. And if the doctors aren't putting you into their heart, heart tests fast mm-hmm. enough, then all of these things go wrong. So uh, one of the things I always tell all of my patients, and those of you in the audience have probably heard this, um, any symptom of discomfort or unusual sensation anywhere between your nose and your navel comes on with exertion, be it physical or emotional, and goes away with wet rest, you just have to consider your heart. It may not be, but so you go to the doctor, they check you out and you're fine, great. But you have to consider that this could be my heart. Mm-hmm.
2: And you have to follow up on it. I mean, we, we certainly see that women um, are less likely to seek care, um, but when they seek care, they're, they're somewhat less likely to get screened for uh, some of the, the, for the, whether they have high cholesterol, whether they have... Um, a hypertension. Um, and among those who get screened, even among people with a, a major cardiovascular risk factor like diabetes, which has a bigger impact on your, your uh, risk of having a major um, cardiovascular event in women than in men, um, women are also less likely to, um, to get treated if they have hypertension, if they have uh, high cholesterol. And among those who are treated, they have poor outcomes um, part of it may be that we haven 't studied this as much in women we um, one of the one of the jokes in the pharmacological research is that even the rats are white and male um, <laughs> and um, mm. it's it 's just traditionally been easier to study males, um, and um, simpler, and they're they're a little bit younger, they're not as sick, it fits all of those models of clear patients with just heart disease, but the problem is that because women are somewhat older when they get heart disease, they are more complicated patients, they're more likely have other comorbidities and other medications, so we need more work looking at some of the, the policy pharmacy, polypharmacy problems. Mm-hmm. Um, do
4: you see some of this in uh, in your support group? Yeah, I mean, really, as Dr. Watson was saying, it's being your own advocate. I mean, I encourage patients, if they're feeling anything, you go to your doctor, and if the cardiologist says, or someone, they disagree with you, and you feel like something is going on, then you go to another cardiologist. It's all right to go and seek two, three opinions. It's your body. It's your health. It's your heart. So I'm I have several women that have come in um, who have to be their own advocates as well. I mean, I have a heart transplant patient also. She was, I'm not their doctor, but, you know, in my group. And she is absolutely amazing. And it's stunning to me also because what I encourage everyone as well is, is really to look at your life and what kind of support you have in your life also friendships. I know we're talking about when when I talk about heart disease and what you can do to live heart healthy. There's exercise and diet, but it's also about taking a step back and looking at your life and looking about the pe- looking at the people that are in your life and what kind of support you have. I mean, studies have actually been proven that people that have more support in their life and are not surrounded by skeptical people. There's a do- Dr. Dean Ornish. It's I mean, he's wonderful and he has has proven that with support and with positive outlooks and love in your life, you can really help defeat disease. And so I encourage people also when they're looking at their own heart health and, and their life in general, all of you here tonight, to, to look at that as well and to take that into... In, it's, it's another factor in your heart health. So.
2: One of the other issues is how you present as a patient. It's entirely different to go in and say, I had this problem the other day, but it went away. Um, And I had it, but it went away. And and if if you go in saying, why is this? I I want to rule it out. um, That's entirely different than going in and saying, I think I'm stressed. I think that there's a lot on my plate. Um, You're you're presenting uh, in a different way that asks for a different kind of care. And, um, I mean, it may be a little bit simpler by the time you make it to a cardiologist, but in primary care they've got a, a whole gamut to cover in the 10 or 11 minutes they might have you there for so long
4: and, and yeah and I actually tell our patients to go in write a list of what kind of symptoms you're feeling mm-hmm. keep a daily log prior to seeing your your doctor, not even your your cardiologist an internist and let them know what kind of symptoms you're having go in with your now some some doctors I don't know about Dr. Watson uh, but they don't they don't really like it when you record uh, what they're saying but if you, do you, what do you think? I have no, I absolutely have no problem with that. Because when you're in that moment, you, it's, it's difficult. Sometimes your judgment can get cloudy. And, and as you were mentioning, I mean, people, we go in there and we don't want to bother anyone. I don't know. At least that's how, that's what I come across with several women. We don't want to bother anyone with our issues. However, they are important and this is your body. Okay. And so you need to be, armed there with a pad and paper, with a person, a friend, a husband, uh, you know, your neighbor. I'm sure that anyone in your community would be willing to... We have this network, this support network, and a a patient told me the other day that she went in uh, to get a heart procedure done, and she had to take two buses and a Metrolink to the hospital, okay? Rather than calling up a, a friend, talking to a neighbor. She had had a girls' night dinner a couple of nights before and she didn't feel comfortable to ask someone to drive her. So it's just about be, really looking within and realizing that people are, are out there and want to help you. Mm-hmm. So And and that you can be your own advocate too. That it's really just be your own advocate, listen to your heart. So
2: uh, one of the points you were uh, raising earlier, the difference in men's and women's presentation. I mean, another issue is um, that isn't it more common for men to have that major artery blockage exactly. and more women have this microvascular disease? Exactly,
3: So, it, just like I was mentioning. So men usually have a little blockage in the artery that ruptures open, boom, mm-hmm. blood flow stops, dramatic heart attack, you can't miss it. But the um, disease in women is different. It's usually more diffuse, more small vessel, meaning might the, the big large vessels that you see on an angiogram... That's That really does feed the outside half of the heart, but the inside half of the heart is fed by microvessels, tiny little vessels that you never see on an angiogram. So your stress test could be positive. You could be having a lot of pain. They bring you in, do the angiogram. It's completely normal, pat you on the back, send you home, say you're fine. But Dr. Barry Mears has found that those women that have microvascular disease their outcomes are just as bad as someone who has major epicardial disease. So mm-hmm. you can't always um, see it on an angiogram. There are other much more expensive and more elaborate tests that can detect it, but it's, it's something that we have to be on the lookout for.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and as much as half of the heart disease in women may be this microvascular um, disease. So it's really important to understand that even if you get that angiogram, you get that test, in men... I mean, it makes sense. We, we design these tests mainly around caring for a male patient, um, and they work best and give us most reliable information about male patients. But in women, um, having ruled out this major vessel disease um, doesn't tell you you're okay. It doesn't tell you um, don't worry about everything, you know, go have the pork rinds. Um, it's, um, and either way, don't have the pork rinds. Um, but um, it's really a, an issue of understanding what does it mean if you're still having problems, if you're still having experience. Don't let that you know, cow you into thinking, well, it must be something else. It must be me. Right. Um, but I mean, most of us have busy lives. It's very easy to think, you know, could, it, could it be the fact that I'm not getting enough sleep or that I'm, I'm dealing with too many things, um, and to make that attribution instead of saying there really is something wrong here.
3: Right. So one of the things that oftentimes women were told was, don't worry, honey, you're just stressed. Well, it turns out stress kills. Exactly. So it might be that you're just stressed, but they've done really nice, elegant research showing that coronary spasm and angina, not your heart not getting enough blood, can be elicited by physical exertion or emotional exertion. And in fact, in women, it's more common to have angina, or your heart not getting enough blood, elicited by emotional exertion than it is physical exertion. It's just the opposite for men, but for women, really, stress can kill. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and leave people with the impression because the pain resolved, because it went away, doesn't mean it's not physical in underlying origin. It doesn't mean that it was just because of the stressful circumstances at the time. Um, I'm sure you see people who don't um, don't seek care, don't get the, the follow up care that they need.
4: Mm-hmm. They don't, so. and yeah, I mean, there are patients also. They travel abroad, and then they have a heart of, heart event, and uh, they didn't realize. I have a woman who had actually had a heart attack abroad, but she didn't realize that until she came back home. And so, and I'm sure, do you come across patients like that where they all the time? It's unbelievable. They've actually suffered a heart attack, and they had no idea.
3: They recall an event. Yeah, I remember about three months ago, I was sick as a dog. I couldn't breathe. I had a really bad cold or something. No, that was a heart attack. <laughs> yeah.
4: It's really and And you can
3: pick
2: it up by seeing a difference in their, their EKG afterwards. You see a change that had to have happened because of a, of a major event. Um, and, and it happens in men, too, but it's,
4: more, it's a more common problem uh, in women. But, you know, heart disease, it kills more women than all the cancers combined. I mean, that's pretty unbelievable when you think about it. And uh, I don't know, for me at least, I'm just so honored to be talking about it because it doesn't seem like it gets as much attention as some of the other diseases. Whereas, I'm, don't get me wrong, because I, it's awful, any type of disease, but I, I just think it's important for people to really understand the severity of it
5: mm-hmm. and
4: that it's worldwide, too. It's really...
2: In fact, uh, most people don't realize that since 1984 in this country, more women than men have had um, have a heart attacks, have had major uh, cardiovascular events, and more women than men have died of heart attacks. And yes, they're older at onset, but they also typically have uh, a long life expectancy as long as, as the men. It's not, um, it's not very simple math that explains uh, the problem or the solution. Um, We also don't really understand yet what to do best about some of this microvascular problem.
3: Absolutely correct. We really don't because we designed strategies to treat the epicardial, the big vessel disease, because that's what most people were getting and that's what we thought was the major culprit in heart attacks but we didn't design and we still don't know exactly how to treat the microvascular disease. We think a lot of the strategies will be the same and we do treat them that way. Um, But the major studies are currently ongoing to, to let us know for sure that that's the right thing to do. Mm
2: -hmm. And this is where some of the numbers you were talking about come in, Amanda, that, that although we have huge success in raising money for, for caring for cancer um, and for, for breast cancer, Less money goes to care for, for, for research on heart disease than for breast cancer. It's and that's including the research, all of the American Heart Association research on men and women. Women still make up a relatively small subset of the patients in, uh, in uh, heart disease studies in this country, even when we take into account the, the Women in the Women's Health Initiative yeah. study. There's a huge disparity.
4: It's unbelievable. Breast cancer gets all this funding, and heart disease is down here, which is... Mm -hmm. And when you think about the numbers, it just doesn't really make sense.
3: And there's what's interesting, there's a whole new sort of subfield of cardiology called Mm cardio-oncology because what they're discovering now is that survivors of cancer end up dying of heart disease. There's a big correlation between chest radiation for any cause, lymphoma, breast cancer, whatever, and subsequent development of heart disease. So now we have to figure out not only how to care for patients with a priori heart disease, but patients who get heart disease secondary to treatment for cancer.
2: And we were talking about this a little bit uh, earlier this evening with some of the people um, here, that, um, that one of the consequences of our successes in medicine is we have more people living with disease, um, and that leads to new problems, like having people who survive cancer and uh, and it turns out have a, uh, an exceptionally high rate of, of having heart attacks. And it's it, on the face of it, you know, that's, that's a success that people are living long enough for this to happen, but it starts to tell you something different about how we need to organize care, um, because if you're getting all of your care from an oncologist, maybe it isn't enough on their radar um, to be looking for some of the... Um, the issues that you ought to see your cardiologist for um, or primary care. So um, what steps can women take? Oh.
4: <laughs> I just encourage all of you to go home and really think about it and... Understand the risks for heart disease. And I I don't want you all to leave here because I know sometimes people leave these things thinking, oh, my goodness, and Mm -hmm. and getting really scared. You you don't have to get scared. Just be empowered by what we're saying. Empower yourself to really take a look at your own heart health and and look within. Yeah, and that's the nice thing about heart disease. It's so forgiving um,
3: for so many things. So if you smoke, stop today. Five years from now, your risk of having a heart attack goes back to like you never smoked. If you were a couch potato your whole life, and at age 50, you start exercising, you can catch up to someone who exercised regularly their whole life. It'll take you about 10 years to catch up, (laughs) but you will catch up. You've got to work at it. (laughs) So we don't recommend you not do anything, but again, it's never too late to start, and so, mi- so much of heart disease can be preventable. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so on that note, I'd like us to open this up to get questions from the audience. So if everybody, if, in case you haven't been here, raise your hands if you have a question. Uh, our microphones will come to you, and um, then we'll... That's exactly right. Thank you. Thanks so much. We'll begin here to the speakers, right?
3: Hi. Um, I'm 65, and I have been trying to avert what I know is uh, common in my family. So I've been trying to do some preventive things. One of the things I do is called EECP, and I wanted to know uh, your opinion about it as a preventive maintenance. Uh, I think it stands for Enhanced Electrocardial (laughs) Counterpropulsion Therapy. I can I take think that it's one. definitely yes. <laughs> so. EECP is a not you. You get strapped into these big pants that inflate <laughs> and relax, and inflate and relax. Does that sound familiar? Yes. <laughs> and the the whole thought about it is that it improves um, development of collaterals, improves circulation to the heart, and therefore can help prevent angina. That's what it was first developed for. Um, as it's never been validated as sort of for someone without angina, but a lot of things that work for angina also work as prevention. The reason we think it works is it because it causes um, what's called angiogenesis, new blood vessel growth. So it helps sort of sprout new blood vessels. Um, that being said, as far as I know, most or all of the research on that has been done in people with known heart disease. As a preventive strategy, I'm not sure.
0: We we have a question you in the might back. Want to diversify? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, since everything that you're saying, all the symptoms seem so vague, um, and it's so hard to determine and what's going on. Are you saying though that there would, that there has to be some kind of pain, or that
3: in order for it to be uh, no, it does not. I, as I've said, so any symptom between your nose and your navel that comes on with exertion and goes away with rest. And that symptom can be pain. It could be shortness of breath. It could be unusual sweating. It could be um, you know, numbness in your jaw. It could be anything that reliably comes on with exertion and oh. goes away with rest. You have to think about your heart. And again, as as Amanda said, we don't want you to go home every time you feel a twinge thinking it's your heart. But if it does reliably come on with exertion, and reliably goes away with rest. You have to think about your heart.
2: Mm-hmm. keep in mind the nausea example yeah, as well. The, nausea too. Uh, the sudden onset. Uh, yeah, some people feel like they're getting the worst case of the flu. Mm-hmm.
3: You had one more question.
0: But then, if you do go and you're worked up, and they do the test, just like you said that they do from, and they no, you're fine. It's not that. Then what? Do you, you If they
3: do the appropriate workup and they do not find anything, then you can say, "Good, I'm fine." But it depends on each individual case, but you should make sure it's someone you feel comfortable with, that they know that they feel comfortable dealing with women, especially because women will present differently. And if that's the case and you feel confident that it's been worked up, then I think it's a, you should go home and keep all the preventative strategies going, but not worry.
4: It is also very important, if you do feel like you might be going, having a heart event, to say, I think I'm having a heart attack especially if you're a woman, it's very important to say those words because then they will really take you seriously. I've come to realize that that is what you need to say.
1: We have a question in the middle.
0: Hi. Um, Thank you for the panel. It's been really interesting. Um, My question is the link between diet and heart disease. I mean, you hear so much now about what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat. You should cut back on red meat. Chicken has hormones. I mean, everything has something wrong with it. Grains have... Just don't eat.
4: <laughs> yeah. I was
3: telling you, mm. grains
0: are GMO. Yeah. <laughs> um, vegetables have pesticides. What the hell? Yeah. And what are you supposed to eat?
4: It's hard. Soybeans hard... have
0: estrogen in their GMO. That's a, a great question. Well, I know
4: the American Heart Association actually recommends that people um, adhere to a Mediterranean diet. Yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Mediterranean diet. Fish, legumes, lots of leafy greens and... I you you know it depends on the fish. It's tough. I I understand exactly where you're coming from and how it is hard especially the food industry right now. But you just have to you you have to go out there and try and pick make the best choices for you. And yeah. And and I, I
3: exactly agree with Amanda. The Mediterranean diet eating plan is definitely the most validated eating plan currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, what that means is we eat real food. We try not to eat processed food. If it comes from the ground or comes from the land, it's probably better for you than if it comes from a place with big arches. But um, so, and, and, it, and we can't make ourselves crazy about all the particulars, but I think if you follow a sort of whole food, real
4: food diet, that's the best. Mm-hmm. Fruits, berries, and nuts, that's how we were supposed to right, eat. Right, and wild <laughs> salmon, if you're concerned with the mercury... And trying to go more organic and, and I always in, encourage people also, because I'm very into the whole food industry as well, um, to, to really be your own advocate as well. If you're if, if this is something you're passionate about, get out there and and become more involved in GMOs and all understanding what, what everything is.
3: I do what am. It sounds I, yeah, like it. I feed kids every day. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah, and right. uh,
2: having a varied diet helps. I mean, one one of the places that you have the the biggest problem is if there's one thing that is a mainstay of your diet. If there's a problem with that thing, then you you really have um, high exposure. Um, so having. Chocolate, it makes me
3: happy. <laughs> They're high in antioxidants and little dark chocolate. And and I've got to say, happy points count. Don't ever let anyone tell you. So I I always tell my patients no one can eat perfectly pristine diet 100% of the time. My own personal philosophy is if it's not going to make me look up longer, it better make me really happy. So I'm going to eat that chocolate. Exactly, right? We have a question in
0: the back. Okay. Um, In line with what you were saying, I'm curious um, about genetic markers as well as estrogen, the impact of estrogen. Do you want to?
3: Which genetic markers?
0: Well, genetic, sorry, Uh, genetic markers in terms of things that we should be looking out for in our
3: family histories. Yeah. So um, the, the overall family pedigree is a much better way to go than try to look at every single genetic marker because if you go to the medical literature once a week, there's a new genetic marker that's been associated with risk, and you could make yourself crazy. And There's nothing you can do about it. But knowing your family history and what your overall family risk is will help guide you to your treatment. I know my family all dies of heart disease. I better get to see a preventive cardiologist pretty soon. I know my whole family has high cholesterol. I'd better talk to my internist about getting on cholesterol. I know that everybody has hypertension. I better work on relaxation, stress reduction techniques, things like that. And there are a million genetic markers, like you said, that have been associated with. But when you look at them the percentage of risk that they can, can actually explain is about yeah. 0. 0.005%. I mean, it's a very small percent. Mm-hmm. And the second question was about estrogen. So um, there are many phytoestrogens, meaning coming from plant sources or artificial sources giving us estrogens. That is true that um, young girls are going through puberty earlier and things like that. Um, we don't truly know what risk that carries for the long term for heart disease. We do know that exogenous hormones, giving in the form that most hormones were given in this country, those are um, primpro, primarin, horse hormones basically, were not successful and they actually increased the risk of heart disease. So we know that that's not a good strategy but we're still trying to figure out what is. Mm -hmm. Um, The one thing I've learned over the years that I've been a cardiologist is every time we find that something's deficient, we say, ah, I just give it back and it'll be good. Well, um, it didn't work with exogenous hormones the way we gave it. It didn't work with... Um, exogenous vitamin A or vitamin C or vitamin E, and now the whole big bandwagon is vitamin D. We don't know if that's going to work, but um, we've not been able to give back things the way nature supplied them, so we haven't um, always done a good job with that. Yeah. The thing... Uh, I, go
2: ahead. I was just going to say, on the on the hormone replacement therapy, interestingly, the first studies that led to this whole kick in the sense that adding uh, estrogens would be preve- protective in women uh, was a theory, because women had later... Uh, onset of cardiovascular disease, and some small studies done in men um, and and so they generalized from the men then having later uh, onset of, of of heart disease and for For decades, it was just uh, a theory and a practice uh, when the women 's health initiative study was. Was funded. It was considered by by many to be a boondoggle because it was and, so clear. And it uneth- was so obvious and unethical, and unethical, unethical to even to even try do a trial um, and to, and have some women not go on hormone replacement therapy. And it turned out um, that it was actually a very bad thing for women, would increasing a variety of cancers and increasing. Uh,
3: Uh, Which is why research is so important. Yeah,
2: So so funding research, doing research, and in doing research on the copulation you're going to treat is critical.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, It's the same thing with the aspirin story. So aspirin, preventive aspirin, the low-dose baby aspirin, was validated in the Physician's Health Study. That was a huge study out of Harvard School of Public Health that enrolled all male physicians. And they gave them regular size aspirin every other day. And after five years, they saw a dramatic reduction in heart attacks. These were all men 50 years of age and older. So based on that, the United States Preventative Services Task Force said everybody should be on low-dose aspirin starting 50 years and, and above. But in 2004, they did the same study in, in what they called the Nurses' Health Study. It was all women. And they started at age 40. And they followed them for 10 years, and that they used a tiny dose, 50 milligrams of aspirin every other I mean, sorry, 100 milligrams of aspirin every other day. Mm-hmm. And there was no benefit, no reduction in heart attack. They did have a reduction in stroke, but no reduction in heart attack. So one of the things we know is that middle-aged women have more strokes than heart attacks. Middle-aged men have more heart attacks than strokes. Low-dose aspirin prevents middle-aged heart attacks in men. And it seems to prevent middle-aged strokes in women. We have
2: a question. So it in the still front. may be good for you, but it may not may not help on the heart disease.
3: We have a question in the front.
0: Hi, my question has to do with cholesterol statins and heart disease. And it seems to me like it's been so confusing in terms of. You know, mm-hmm. statins were recommended for everybody. You know, everybody had to wash their cholesterol. And then it was kind of like, well, statins should only be given to
3: people who have, who have experienced a um, heart event. And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering where
5: what your thoughts are about
3: that right great now. Great question. So um, statins have been an absolute um, blessing for cardiovascular prevention in high-risk individuals. No question. If you've had a heart attack or you have um, seriously high cardiovascular risk, lowering cholesterol with statins, or even if your cholesterol is normal, being on a statin reduces cardiovascular events and makes people live longer if their cardiovascular risk is high enough. For lower risk people, we haven't been able to demonstrate that as conclusively. So many studies show that if you're a low risk individual, it can lower your risk even further. But That means taking you from a risk of having a heart attack in the next 10 years of 0.05% to maybe 0.04%, something like that. And some studies don't even show a risk-benefit in very low-risk patients. What we know for certain is if you're high-risk, i have already had disease, statins are beneficial. But for many others, they're not going to be. And so you have to ask your physician what your own individual risk is. The, it, you, if you have a high cholesterol number versus good Yes, if you Yes, if you're bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, is high enough, it's recommended that if it's at 200 or or greater, that everybody gets on medication. But again, that's an individual decision between you and your doctor, um, and statins aren't right for everyone. They are right for a lot of people, but not for everyone. We have a question in the front.
0: I'm not sure that I understood exactly what you were saying, but it seemed to me that we were talking about uh, men having... uh, Problems because of their arteries uh, outside the heart, but women had more problems in uh, smaller arteries within the heart. And I'm wondering what we can do in the way of asking our doctor to do tests or uh, how can we discern whether or not we have these smaller problems inside the heart.
3: And you did describe it very well. So um, the microvascular dysfunction is only a research test. And certain research facilities like Cedars-Sinai or UCLA can do them. Um, it's not that they're necessarily recommended for all women either, but it's a, it's something that you can speak to your individual physician about, and it's not something they can order from you know the lab or anything. It's a research study that only research institutions can do. We have a question to the speakers, right? Um,
5: uh, my name is Dr. Simon Simonian. I'm not a cardiologist, but um, I wanted to address the issue of prevention. Uh, we've talked about uh, diagnosis and treatment, how to make the diagnosis, and I wondered if we could say a word about prevention. And I know a little bit I want to share with you, see if you agree with it, Dr. Watson. So oh, please. Uh, namely, Dr. Ann Pan, P-A-N, from the Harvard School of Public Health, published a study of 11 years follow-up of uh, patients both genders 46 plus Uh, published in the archives of internal medicine and 11,000 patients were followed up and there were um, uh, seven preventive criteria that these patients were asked to uh, practice. Uh, uh, Namely, as you know, uh, one is to be active, active 30 minutes a day. Second is to have normal blood cholesterol, below 200 milligrams per deciliter. Third is to be eating a healthy diet, Mediterranean diet. The fourth is to have a normal blood sugar, 100 or below, uh, starving. Uh, And the next one is to have a a normal blood pressure, 120 over 80 or less. And the next one is to have an ideal weight uh, by eating low calories. (laughs) And the last one is to not smoke. So these... And she found with her colleagues that the death rate, instead of being 100%, as expected, was 63% reduction as a result of these seven principles of prevention. What do you think about that? I it? absolutely
3: agree. And she also found out, though, that amongst women, it was something like only 3% had all seven of those. So it was pretty rare to have all seven. And but it's
2: and relatively at, rare among men as well. And, um, most people you know, have the, a subset
3: absolutely. of, of the, good behaviors. The study I, I know of... Um, was looking at the nurse cell study in those exact same seven parameters. Moderate alcohol intake was actually one of them, too. Um, So it must have been eight. But they found that it was a vanishingly small group that had all of those practices. But you're absolutely right. Those people live well into their 90s if they do. They do very, very well.
2: We
1: have
3: a question
2: in the center. Well, just one one more point first. Um, the other thing that we're getting increasing data on is that it's not just how active you are, how much you're active, but the sedentary time um, that you have, how much time you spend sitting. And we do a lot more of it now with more screens uh, in front of us. I always feel awkward saying this to, a, to an audience that's sitting <laughs> to listen to us. I mean, we should just jog
0: in place yeah, briefly. Right. Um, but... Um, Yes. (laughs) Okay, so uh, I'm over here. Hi. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to ask what, um, you know, I have all those seven, and yet what what are the differences that we can expect as a normal expectation of aging? Because I don't feel, I mean, I feel like I'll be running to the doctor every 15 minutes if I just went every time I was out of breath or dizzy, you know, or uh, sweaty because I'm a runner and things like that. So I really, like, what can we, what should we normally expect? What are normal characteristics of aging that are not having anything to do with cardiovascular disease and I would really also like a definition of cardiovascular disease. Does that just mean the clogging up or is there like a whole spectrum of when you say disease I'd like a definition of what falls under
3: that banner.
2: Do you want to start with the
3: definition and then we'll So the, the definition of cardiovascular disease in the strictest sense is any disorder of the heart and vessels. So that can mean heart failure having nothing to do with the arteries. It could mean blockages of the arteries. It could mean myocarditis, meaning an infection of the heart. It's any disorder of the heart and vessels. Um, that's the strictest definition, and that's the one I like to use. Um, and in terms of when, how do you know what's normal and what's not? Of course, we're all gonna slow down as we age. We're gonna get more tired and things. The thing I always ask my patients, do you find yourself out of breath doing things that other people find not difficult? So it's not just, so if you're walking around the block and you find yourself out of breath, that's not normal. But if you're running a marathon and you're a little out of breath, that's okay. (laughs) So if you find yourself obviously doing normal activities, regular things, and getting out of breath, that's not normal.
2: Another thing that you need to look for is, is there a change in what you're experiencing as difficult? Is there is there something different in what's happening to you? Um, amazingly, it's, it's quite hard for us to study what's normal aging, um, because we don't Well, one, we don't have any normal people. Um, We all are unusual examples of people. Um, And so when you try to follow a population and sort it out, and we have some studies where we've tried to follow a select group of very healthy people starting at age 60 and going on. And then people say, well, but but that was a selected sample. Um, And we see the people age very differently. partly depending on how active they've stayed, partly depending on, on their diet, um, and partly your, your genetic history starts to play right. out And over partly time.
3: based on the seven characteristics yeah. of this gentleman. Exactly. <laughs> it's a, um, exactly right. Yeah.
2: The good news is that the same things that you need to do per, for prevention are the things you need to do for secondary prevention. So really, even if you've gotten the tests and they say it's good and you know that they're not as sufficient as um, if, you were, if you were a guy and saying that there's you could probably rule out heart disease. Um, you need to do the same things now um, to make sure. You need to follow these behaviors. You need to, to focus on having, uh, you know, some engaged social uh, contacts with other people um, and, uh, and, and listen to, uh, are you giving yourself the advice that you would give your friend uh, or your sister?
4: Listen to your body. Listen to your heart.
1: Mm-hmm. We have time for one last audience question right here in the middle, the hardest one to get to. <sighs>
4: I have a
0: non-clinical question.
4: The genetic component
0: you answered very well. Amanda, where do you meet? When do you meet? Oh, yes.
4: So our group meets the second Monday of every month at UCLA's Cardiac Rehab Center. And you can go to womenheart.org to find out more. And I believe that it's in the program as well. In the Peter well. Martin building? I'm sorry, what? In the Peter Martin in building? In the 200 building. Yeah, the 200 mm-hmm. building. And um, yeah, it's a wonderful group of women that meet. It's meets. a fabulous group it's of women. It's absolutely unbelievable. Uh, on July 8th, which is our, our next meeting, though, we are having a picnic uh, in the Pot park potluck. so it's a potluck um feel free to get my contact information or it's womenheartofwestlosangeles of west los angeles at gmail.com to email us what time and, um it's at <laughs> okay so the picnic it's uh, we meet at 7 p.m this meeting's at 7 p.m from 7 to 8 p.m and um yeah thank you for for asking because it's very important support is is wonderful so uh, I wanted to
2: take the, the moderator's uh, protocol and ask each of you, um, if you had one one minute uh, to ask a question in the elevator of a major policymaker, what would you
4: ask them to do while in office? Um, you want to go first, Amanda? I would ask that they look at women in heart disease, that more research is funded specifically on things such as estrogen levels, such as um, just essentially... Women and heart disease, we, we present ourselves differently than men. And we are genetically different. We're different human beings. We're different people. There is. It's what is it? Men are from Mars and women are from mm. Venus. <laughs> so why not look at us medically that way? And why not actually set aside funds for women and heart disease? So that's what I would.
3: I would do the same. So that's, thank you for saying that for me. But I also would ask them to make it easier to live healthy lives, so I would say, make sure we have bike paths, make there be streetlights, make the sidewalks safe, make you know, let us have um, the chances to be healthy.
2: I'm I'm very flattered that you went with that because that's what my book is about: about constrained choice and how we make how many of the decisions that affect people's ability to live healthy lives aren't made at the individual level. I They're made by decision makers. So, Especially at
4: parents, too.
2: Absolutely. The next
4: generation. It's really about the next generation as well.
2: Uh, the, the one piece I would add is that if we want to realize what's possible out of um, the health care expansion and the Affordable Care Act is that we actually start tracking uh, quality of care by gender. Um, it's done in other countries. It's not done here. Um, and it's certainly not that there aren't enough women for us to be able to get good numbers. <laughs> Um, Half of us. Yeah. In- <laughs> it's the majority. Um, so um, that's on that note. I want to thank everyone for coming. Um, thank please thank our panel.
0: This presentation is provided as a public service by the Rand Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at Rand, visit us online at www.rand.org/events.